Welcome to In Orbit, the podcast exploring how technology from space is empowering a better world. Brought to you by the Satellite Applications Catapult. I'm your host, Sarah Crudis, and in this series, we'll be in conversation with some of the most inspiring minds in the country, exploring the ways that the UK is using space to make huge differences to our everyday lives, as well as gaining a better understanding of its role in shaping and sustaining our planet for the future. In today's episode, we're exploring the concept of space-based solar power and the role this new technology could play in our journey to net zero. I'm joined by Martin Salto, Senior Business Manager at Fraser Nash Consultancy and Chair of the Space Energy Initiative, David Humphrey, Space Power Lead at the Satellite Applications Catapult, and Ali Stickins, Space Strategy Lead also at Fraser Nash Consultancy. Since the dawn of the space age, we have been transfixed with not only the spectacle of space exploration, but also the opportunities that this new vantage point provides for technological advancement. Today, by combining the advances in launch capabilities and in-orbit manufacturing, we are now in a position to develop the infrastructure for a space-based solar power system capable of providing clean energy for planet Earth. This idea is an old one, dreamed up by some of the great writers of science fiction, but it's the recent advances in our capabilities that are helping to make this possible for our future. With the UK committed to fully decarbonise by the year 2050, a major consideration is the delivery of energy through clean generation from renewable sources. But the energy we generate must remain affordable, reliable and secure for our economy to continue to prosper. This is where space-based solar power stands out from the alternatives. So Dave, Ali and Martin join us now. And Dave, I was wondering if I could just start with you, if you could set the scene with the challenges that we really face with net zero and how space-based solar power, which sounds like something out of science fiction, could potentially be a solution. Yeah, well, uh, first of all, I, I think it's, it's worth setting the scene that um, in 2050, we're going to have to try and generate about 50 billion megawatt hours um, in, in, in 2050. And currently, we're only doing 20 billion megawatt hours. Um, we have a population of around 7 billion now. 2 billion of those have no access to uh, primary electricity. They're using primary biomass. And therefore, we're going to have to electrify everything as well, transport, um, heating, and so there's this real massive shortfall. Um, it looks like it's going to have to be about 40 billion megawatt hours, and that's 4 million megawatt hours per day for 10,000 days. Um, and just to kind of get, put that in context, that's like 100 square kilometers of solar panels every day for 10,000 days. So around 650 wind turbines per day, or uh, Hinkley Point C, one of the big fission reactors, every week for 10,000 days. So there's like no silver bullet. Um, we're going to have to uh, incentivize uh, energy efficiency. Um, we are going to have to r- rapidly accelerate renewables. But then there's this massive space for new baseload technology. Technologies. We uh, need to be doing more fission. Um, there's the new small modular reactors in fission, but also things like fusion and space-based solar power to provide those gigawatts of electricity we need to try and get to that point. 
So it's not just one thing then, it's multiple things we need to meet this challenge of net zero. It has to be everything. So there's no silver bullet. So space-based solar power, which we're talking about today, is going to be an absolute vital part of that portfolio. But it's not the only part. We need to massively accelerate renewables and we need to massively accelerate these new baseload technologies. And can you just explain how space-based solar power could potentially work. What, what do we actually mean? What, to, you know, to our listener can understand, what do we mean when we talk about space-based solar power? Because it sounds like something out of the movies. Yeah, so, um, so we've done a number of studies now to try and take that science fiction away from, from this technology. It, the, the basis of it is a uh, large, uh, large spacecraft uh, with um, photovoltaic cells, so very much like the solar cells terrestrially, but of a higher concentration and we reflect the sun uh, onto those uh, um, PV cells and then we trans we transform that energy that electricity we've created with that PV into a microwave beam and we um, uh, transmit that microwave beam onto the earth and collect it using a receiver um, exactly like you would with any other baseload technology um, I've made it sound a little bit more simple than it is. Of course, this, this spacecraft is extremely large. It will require um, many uh, uh, launches in order to put this thing together into space. But one of the, the beautiful things about this new baseload technology is we understand the physics of all of it. It's a mass production challenge. It's a, it's a, a logistical challenge rather than trying to figure out the physics. So it's, it's almost an, an easier challenge um, scientifically compared with something like nuclear fission. So fission is also a, a well understood uh, technology. It's going to be massively important for, for net zero. Um, one of the good things about space-based solar power is actually the decommissioning. We're going to make this thing highly modular and the decommissioning of that then will become relatively easy. Obviously, we know some of the pitfalls in nuclear fission that the decommissioning side is a very expensive activity compared to the whole life cycle of that fission. Now, I'm by no means saying that we shouldn't have fission. It just makes so space-based solar power competitive similar to that of fission because of its long uh, decommissioning times and costs. And what we're talking about then, is it, is it multiple spacecraft, which will be needed, multiple satellites, which will be needed in um, orbit? Whereabouts in orbit will they be needed and, and how many satellites? So we have a... a, a, a a plan to to get to the end point so we will initially have some form of a demonstrator that demonstrator's orbit um, is likely to be a little bit closer to the final destination because we'll want to test these things out but in the end we will want to have uh, a single spacecraft to provide two gigawatts in a, a, a kind of geostationary orbit so that that's all distance where currently a lot of the comms satellites are um, in the end, um, we would like before we get to the, around about the midpoint of the 2040s, I'm trying to really do my hardest at the moment to see how much I can keep moving things to the left. Um, but we have the potential to be producing 10 gigawatts um, in the early 2040s. So again, with, when you've accelerated those renewables, all of a sudden we're able to start turning on two gigawatts, not only for this UK, but also make it dispatchable. So we 
where we will be able to provide a service to other countries um, for, for to provide them uh, electricity, not only to help net zero, but also for us to become economically more vibrant. So there's an economic benefit to come for that, which we'll touch on later in this episode. But um, so would that still just be one satellite? producing that or would you have multiple by then yeah so by we're hoping that uh, around the, the the mid to late 30s we have two gigawatts and then depending on uh appetite and how much we can accelerate that uh the the launch schedule and the mass production methodologies and those logistics we would hope by the mid 2040s to be able to start really providing significant gigawatts hopefully 10 gigawatts gigawatts by that time and to kind of give you a kind of an understanding Hinkley Point C um, which is being built currently is around about three three and a half gigawatts. Okay and I think it's a good point now to bring in Martin and Ali who are from Fraser Nash Consultancy and you actually put together a report looking at the feasibility of space-based solar power which concluded that it is feasible and also at the de-risking pathways towards net zero. Um, Martin can you explain how this could be feasible and why it's so exciting. Yes. Hi, Sarah. Um, so over the last 10 years, I think four or five things have happened to make it feasible. I think it's always been considered technically viable, but uneconomic, unaffordable. But with the advent of reusable rockets, the price of launch to low Earth orbit has come down by 90%. And the cost of space hardware has come down by 99%. It's only 1% of what it used to be, as evidenced by things like the OneWeb and the Starlink satellite constellations, mass manufacture. Um, then all of the technology, the underpinning technology like in-space robotics uh, is maturing. High, high concentration, high efficiency photovoltaics are getting, getting much more capable and, and affordable. And so, um, and, and then if you overlay that with the real urgency to decarbonize our economies and develop these new forms of baseload power, as Dave was uh, talking about, it, it really is um, meant that it's now not only technically viable, but economically affordable. And is this because what we're seeing in space exploration, and you mentioned the cost of launch coming down because of reusable rockets and also lighter weight materials and such on, we're seeing this kind of convergence. So we're not just doing one thing in space, we're trying to do everything we do on Earth in space. We're extending our presence, you know, new, new space-based economy. And it's it's kind of like a big jigsaw puzzle. So space-based sol solar power has the potential, but we need to crack manufacturing in orbit. We need to crack lots of other problems in orbit in order to enable this to happen. Um I, th I think that's right. We don't need to crack manufacture in orbit. I think the uh, uh, plan is for these systems to be manufactured on Earth and assembled in orbit, which is an easier problem. We've done that before with the International We've, Space Station. Exactly. Although these things will be um, assembled very differently from the, the International Space Station. Uh, again, it's all about the economics. So you'd use autonomous robotic systems. And it's actually a, a, a compared to something complicated like the space station. This is uh, these satellites are made up of hundreds of thousands of identical small modules. So they're designed for integration and assembly. And so uh, with uh, robotic systems specifically designed to assemble these systems, it's um, it's a comparatively 
simple task compared to uh, something like the space station. So it sounds like it's a, an incredible solution for space-based solar panel. Um, Ali, I was wondering if you can explain what are the challenges? Because space is hard. Doing anything in space is hard and we, we face so many challenges on Earth as well. What, what are the biggest hurdles that we need to overcome in order to succeed and to, in order to lay a pathway for a future success for space-based solar power? Well, as you mentioned, um, you know, we're trying to do everything in space. And so space-based solar power will be competing with all of those other interests. You know, we're seeing this commo- increased commercialization and democratization of space. So whilst launch costs are coming down and we're seeing more launch providers, there will be that competition. So it's about creating an ecosystem of launch providers, um, you know, a- a- across the globe, really, that, that this project could use uh, in order to, to launch what is, you know, quite a massive amount of material into orbit. Um, you know, robotics in space, that robotic assembly, we're seeing lots of this happening. Uh, th- there's a lot going on. But there will be some concerns with, with that number of, uh, of modules that need to be assembled and the safety of that. Uh, if you look at assembling something in low Earth orbit, um, it's already a very crowded environment and there are concerns about uh, potential, you know, collisions, increase of, de- of debris um, and, and, you know, the worst case scenario of, of a Kessler syndrome event, which... Uh, you know, which sees the almost the loss of low Earth orbit. So there's a lot of safety that needs to go into that, and and really assuring that the international space community uh, and the community of users of space are are um, are confident that a project of this size won't actually have any um, sort of adverse effects. Um, and then, of course, then you also have that security environment. It's a military environment. There are always concerns about capabilities that have um, that are that are dual use that that have that that commercial and that potential military aspect. So there will be a lot of um, diplomacy that's required as well with um, understanding what the strategic environment is and and how certain actors, you know, could perceive these capabilities being deployed in orbit. And then Martin, I can see you nodding along there as well. Yeah, no, it's it's a complex environment and it needs a lot of international agreement. Um, there are a number of architectures to address uh, some of the, the real challenges that, that Ali talked about. Uh, so, for example, assembly in a medium Earth orbit where to well away from debris and other um, uh, congested orbits and minimising the, 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 the cost of orbit raising um, – Disposal at the end of life is a is a an issue that we're actually looking at um, under contract with the European Space Agency at the moment. Uh, so the organisations are starting to look at some of these these issues, but it's going to take a, a a collaborative international effort, I think, to overcome many of those strategic challenges that um, Ali talked about. And I guess the the optimist in me would say that space is bigger than any one company, corporation or country. You look at the International Space Station, so there is hope for the future there. Um, David, I know you want to pick up on this as well. Yeah, exactly. So you, you, you've just absolutely Have said Have I answered what, I was, what you were yeah, going to so say? It's, I apologise. No, no, it's brilliant. <laughs> so it's also a great opportunity for... Uh, better international co- collaborations for us to get um, better standards in space and on and terrestrially to work together better. We've talked about in-orbit service and maintenance and manufacturing in space. Um, the space-based solar power can be a real platform to enable that burgeoning market. And of course, we've talked about the launch market. We are going to need one or two launches 
<laughs> maybe maybe quite a few um how many launches um, do, you, do you know i think we're going to need um i i think if we're we're really going to go for this we're going to need at least one every couple of days i think and maybe. what size payload would this be well so we we uh, we've got the kind of a very much of a mantra of we're going to be as launch agnostic we're going to build and design this um this um uh, system to be as launch agnostic as possible uh, we're going to have to be very clever with those that module design um, um, so we're going to probably have to move from a, a number of different orbits uh, and get it into the right place, but very much try and be as modular as possible and as launch agnostic as possible. But again, I think, yes, it is a challenge, all of these things we have to do, but we can also see it being a massive vehicle to allow us to have these this international cooperation in space. And while this, um, actually, actually two points with that, the first is um, kind of that, we need things to develop at the same time as the industry. There's no point, for example, having the regulation in place if we haven't got the technology there. Those those two things need to grow. But the, the second point is you mentioned launch and being launch agnostic. Is this um, – the launch market is – kind of flooded at the moment and um, there are a lot of launch providers um, there's a lot of people who want to launch as well is this uh, something which you hope to partner with an existing launch provider or is this something which will be launched within the UK and Martin if you could pick up on that point yeah so uh, we in the short term I think we're looking at systems that are uh, in advanced development in the moment. So we've been talking to SpaceX, for example, about Starship, and uh, perhaps a baseline is to use Starship, uh, 68 launches of, of Starship to get a one complete satellite uh, up into its operational orbit. But then thereafter, fully reusable systems, uh, potentially like reaction engines, uh, Sabre-powered um, single-stage to orbit space plane. Uh, I think the if if and when space-based solar power starts to become really uh, take off and become viable and 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 mainstream and, and and in advanced development this will signal to the launch market um the huge demand for uh for, for high tempo sustainable launch very much like a a fedex uh transportation system uh to 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 orbit and 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 the in space transportation as well. So the the kind of like desire is there, and this is it, I, I think for anyone listening to this, it, it almost sounds like who hasn't perhaps got the experience or the background in the space industry, it, it sounds like a, a dream. But this is, this is a reality. This is something which is technologically feasible. Or and you talk about Starship, and you look at the the developments made with Starship over the last um, year or so and, and where we're heading in our future. What excites you? Both of you, Ali and Martin, you obviously you were involved with this report. What excites you most about the um, potential and why we're doing this? Um, I, I think, first of all, it, it is that that contribution to net zero. Um, I think, you know, everyone's aware of, of the climate security. So anything that we can be doing uh, to, to address that is really exciting. But But for someone like me who's who's really focused on the space side. I think it is about the really the really big projects in space and that international collaboration and and the 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 ways that we can move forward. So 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 many of the technologies that was that, that will be used for space-based solar solar power have uh, the ability to influence other space missions. So the advancements in robotics, the advancements in in very large scale structures. Um, and I think just picking up on something that that Dave mentioned as well, we were talking about the the sort of the regulations and everything. And, we, you know, we've been seeing moves internationally um, that the UK has been leading through the UN on these norms of responsible behaviour in space. 
And I think, you know, a big project like this that, that has so many aspects like that could could actually help to push those that push those through faster. Uh, and so that the international community can can start to develop these norms, potentially leading to international re regulations and, 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 and bigger, you know, perhaps treaties down the line that actually creates a much safer and more sustainable state space environment for all users. Um, so I think it's that potential as well and the, the effects it could have on our long-term use of orbit. And I know how this, uh, you know, space-based solar power fits in around the, the broader aspect of the space environment is something that you're extremely passionate about. Absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, it, space is, is a strategic environment for so many, uh, so many areas, you know, militarily, but, but commercially. And, you know, I mentioned, you know, so many more, so many more industries moving into orbit. Um, and, and it's become so important for our way of life that ensuring that we have that long-term use um, is really essential. And I think that, you know, we, there is a community that is very involved in, in developing these norms and the, the, these behaviours and understanding um, how different actors perceive that environment. Um, and so that's why I think, you know, the international outreach, the collaboration is so important um, and really bringing everyone on board um, to, to ensure that... Um, there is that that willingness for for a project of this size that that everyone understands its importance, um, and, and so that it, it it's not seen as a as a potential threat in any way. It's not seen as um, something that that will be of concern. Um, so it's about going to space to work together to meet huge challenges we face on Earth. Because often the layperson will say, "Why are we going to space when we need to look after what's on Earth?" But it's about utilizing that vantage point that space gives us to improve Earth. Yes, there's there's some really exciting and and quite unique features and characteristics about space-based solar power. So, um, as a nation, it it allows us to have a sovereign secure energy, but it also allows us to collaborate with our natural partners um, in, in a way that you, you really just can't do with any other power source because you can beam it to other places. So anybody with a compatible rectenna can receive power. And that opens up the opportunity to um, work with developing nations who are really going to struggle to decarbonize without making their people um, suffer if they, they can't just move off fossil fuels until they've got a viable and affordable alternative source of energy. So if we can, if they can receive energy through space-based solar power without having to build the complicated infrastructure of, of um, uh, energy generation just by having the, the, the receiving antennas and things, that could be game-changing. And if we just touch on the costs, um, I think it was mentioned in the report that you produced, is $13.9 is required for this. Is that correct? It's it's around that. It's a, we, we think it's around $16 billion okay. um, to, to develop the first-of-a-kind satellite, delivering that two gigawatts into the grid, as, as, as Dave was saying. Thereafter, we'd, um, each satellite is, costs about £3.6 billion. Pounds and, and, and just to reinforce um, Dave's point, um, that's about a quarter of the price of a nuclear plant of equivalent output. Um, so this is why uh, the government has got so excited by this, because the levelised cost of electricity, which is the way of of comparing different energy technologies on a on a level playing field, is 
um, highly competitive with the current intermittent renewables like wind and, and, and terrestrial solar, but it's, it's a lot more affordable. It's much cheaper than the baseload like biomass and nuclear. And of course, its characteristics are really attractive. Um, you can't un un sort of overstate the importance of having baseload and dispatchable power. It really is crucial for the uh, stability of the, of the grid uh, in, in, in a clean energy future. Um, and combined with these attractive environmental characteristics, it's, um, it, it, this is why it's proving so attractive. It's both affordable, it's got these uh, exciting environmental characteristics, and this um, importance of national and energy security. And David, David, is that something you would agree with? Yeah. I mean, just to reiterate, we're starting to run out of baseload energy um, production systems. How serious um, is that? So we have had a situation recently where we had a, uh, a, a lovely uh, uh, autumn, uh, which meant we had very little wind. And so the UK had to start running their coal power stations again. Um, renewables are absolutely vital. However, the ability just to have known um, production, known gigawatts is absolutely vital. Um, um, fossil fuels are incredibly, uh, they're an amazing product because they've got, they're so rich energy density, such a high energy density. It's really difficult to reproduce those things. Um, I always think it's, it's an amazing, it's one of the most amazing things that we've ever seen on our planet. And we set fire to these things. I, I always find it incredible. Um, but, you know, we have very few of these baseload technologies. So we need to put money into new technologies. So, again, space-based solar power, fusion, small modular reactors. These technologies will be able to give that baseload just in case those renewables is either not a sunny day, um, it's it, the, the wind's not there. Um, and then, of course, with space-based solar power, when one country is having or is very rich with their solar, um, maybe they won't need us to point their our space-based solar at them, and we can point it somewhere where they don't have wind or or, or it's not it's overcast. And and what um, Ali, you know, how do we encourage investment in this? Because it sounds like something which has huge potential. But how do we, we get this money? Is it money coming from governments? Is it money coming from an international collaboration? Is it private industry? How are we going to fund this? Because it seems so critical for this um, net zero future that we not only want, but, but need. I mean, it's definitely a project that will require multiple uh, avenues uh, of funding. And I think but getting get, getting that government funding first uh, as a start, just just to kind of get the ball rolling and, and, and show that government is invested and, and, and is interested in it. And I think interestingly for the UK government, uh, if you look at space-based solar power in the context of the integrated review and how it actually touches on so many aspects within that, it's energy, it's international, it's uh, development aid, um, that, you know, there's security aspects to it. So you can actually pull on those different strings within government to show that it's not just a space project, it's not just an energy project, it's actually a very strategic project for the UK in, in so many different ways. And of course, as you then, and then you move on, you can start to look at um, you know, international funding, private funding, as as more get involved and and get interested in it. But but having that buy in from government to start, I think, is is really essential. And and you wanted to pick up, Dave? Yeah, and and so 
it the journey is just as valuable as the end product. Um, we, um, from the Fraser Nash report, um, that it shows that for every uh, pound that's invested, it looks like we they can make two pound forty. Um, I've worked on new energy uh, programs now for quite a long time, about two decades. Um, I actually think that's really conservative. It, in my opinion, I think we can get far closer to three pounds back for every pound and i and so that journey we can make it inherently valuable so we can create jobs regional growth we can upskill at the current workforce we can create a new uh, buzz in that supply chain get them moving faster more efficient more productive and so these new energy sources uh, whether it's space-based solar power whether it's fusion whichever these space they are inherently valuable that journey and so you it, again we're starting to try and make it sound like it's not science fiction it's not we're moving away from that idea of this discovery phase we're now into a kind of delivery phase and that delivery phase has real uh, economic uh, value along that journey as well so the economic potential is huge um, not in terms of both solving this problem but also bringing jobs and opportunity um, to the UK. Um, what stage are we at right now today? I mean, so I'll let Martin, uh, as the chair, um, come come in on this. But just to say that we have, we have uh, from the uh, Fraser Nash uh, report, we have the this space energy initiative with now nearly forty partners. Um, we have uh, really looking to build those consortiums and those working groups that are able to deliver this. We have a UK design uh, from one of our partners, uh, which is a a really attractive design and we have a group that is able to respond as soon as we start getting that initial investment to immediately start to um, um, get demonstrators out to get those designs down and start building that economic activity that we need to do. Uh, I was very fortunate to be uh, at the International Astronautical Congress last week um, talking to our international partners uh, on space-based solar power. And I um, have no doubt that the UK is the place currently to be the world leader in this technology. I am slightly biased. Uh, there is absolutely no doubt I'm, I'm slightly biased. But we have built. Tell those, by your accent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we've bought. We've built those consortiums. We've already built those partners. We have a way. We just need that initial kickoff, and we can get that ball rolling. And Martin, do you want to pick up with that as well? Yeah, I, I think it's a super exciting time because the government has been very supportive. They've started to put in some uh, seed corn funding into technology development. They've put space-based solar power as a uh, in, into the national space strategy uh, for UK innovation and growth and supporting net net zero. And as Dave says, we've we've set up the Space Energy Initiative, which is this collaboration to bring the energy and the space sectors together and to um, take the the development, fundraising, and international um, partnering forward. Um, and, and that's going to be vital because there's no natural prime for space-based solar power at the moment. It's a brand new industry that's going to happen. Um, you, you were asking kind of where we are at the moment. In, and, and at the moment, there's a, 
there's a number of well-developed uh, concepts with underpinning demonstrations around the world, particularly the Japanese, into key areas like wireless power beaming. Uh, the Americans have got something flying in space demonstrating these very lightweight uh, <clears throat> tiles to, to convert the sunlight to the, the microwaves at the right efficiency. So the, the underpinning technology, as Dave says, is, is really well understood. This is now a big engineering uh, integration and, and I don't belittle the size of the challenge. There, there are many, many challenges, but it is, um, it, it, it's a tractable problem. Given government will, uh, and, and um, the, I think the, the will is there because of the imperative for us all to decarbonize our economies. But what more do we need to get to this goal by 2040, by the 2040s? We, 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 we need now a... Um, funding. We, we, the Space Energy Initiative has set up the enterprise uh, to, to develop and deliver the, uh, all of the necessary work that's done with international partners. We've got some really strong signals from government support. And um, as Ali's saying, we're now going out looking for funding, both from government and, and, and wider sources. But there's a real opportunity here for government and, and the private sector to, to be very entrepreneurial. Um, it, it doesn't need government to fund everything, but it does need them to, to, to signal strong support with some funding, and that will bring in the private sector. So the government almost needs to show that confidence um, and then the private sector will follow. Would, would you argue that we need a, a maybe perhaps a mindset change um, within the UK towards this entrepreneurial um, idea and experience that perhaps we, we see in America, but sometimes in the UK, if you fail, you're a failure, whereas other cultures will see that as just a way that didn't work? Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the developments um, in space, it have been the most... Uh, exciting and I, and I suppose the biggest leaps forward that we've seen recently a lot of them have come from the private sector uh, particularly in the US you look at SpaceX um, and, and the reusable rockets um, because they can fail they can afford to fail and you know anyone can go and look at the many times that the Falcon 9 didn't land properly uh, I think there's an entire blooper reel on YouTube of, of, of all the times it didn't work until they got it right because they can uh, put that money in, they can fail very fast um, and, and they can make those leaps forward that, that, that government, you know, when you think about taxpayers' money and, and it, all you have to do is, is see what's happening with, with NASA's space launch system and the, the cost overruns and the time overruns because they have to be more conservative. And so I think bringing that, um, that environment into the UK and, and, and trying to be a little bit more... Um, open to taking some risks and failing to learn uh, and, and to move forward uh, could, could actually help because this is, a, this is a challenge, but it's a challenge not just in engineering, but in time. You know, we have to get this going to be able to, to, to meet our net zero targets. And so actually, you know, taking a few risks might actually be the way to go. And, and Martin, my follow-up question to you has to be, how do we afford to fail? Well, so... The, the point is that going down the journey is going to be really valuable in its own right. So there are a number of technologies we've already identified in the Fraser Nash report, like wireless power beaming, uh, the autonomous robotics in challenging environments, uh, the, 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 the radio frequency 
power power electronics and so forth that all have other applications and there are going to be huge spin-off benefits from developing this technology so it, it is um really valuable to go down this road anyway um and the course the end goal is is so important to develop a new form of clean uh, baseload energy that that we, we we can't afford not to go down this road and, and Dave, I can see you eager to join in. I love it when people are so passionate. Though. And most importantly, we've got no choice. That, that's the most yeah. important thing. We have no choice. We have 10,000 days left by 2050. We have absolutely no choice. We, we don't get to choose anymore. If we want to try and avert this climate crisis, we must start to accelerate the build of renewables. We need to incentivize energy efficiency. We need to build everything we can now. And anything that we can do where we might be able to provide future baseloads, if we can prove we can make value along that journey, it has to be done. We've got 10,000 days. 10,000 days that really really hits home I think when you you put it that way and is this something which is I know you Dave you mentioned the UK's leading on this but is this something which is going to require international collaboration to succeed or are we going to see this public private partnership or individual companies competing against other companies how how will this work is the UK really the leader for this so so it will it, we will need international collaboration. So a really good example of this is the receiver, that the, the ground receiver. It would be, um, I, I, I give an example of, do you remember when we all had mobile phones and we all had to carry our own power bricks around? And no. Went, okay. <laughs> you, you, when did you have yeah, a phone like and, that? And, and, you, and, and, so, and now we have a universal plug where you can all borrow, have your own, you know, you can borrow your friend's plug. Um, we need that with receivers immediately. So we need inter international uh, cooperation to work out what frequency range do we use? What does this look like? So I can point my beam anywhere. So we do need inter international collaboration, but also we want a race. Let's have a race. And so I've been talking with our American colleagues and we and we want we will work together. But we also I want to I want us to be the first one to put the, uh, the first spacecraft up. And I'm sure the Americans want to be the first. So that idea of working together and having f uh, friendly competition is absolutely what we want. It's really important. Because I, I often see the media talk about a new space race and, and it really frustrates me because the only example of space they've got is the Apollo era. But in, in a way, there's that competition which is um, driving forward this innovation. And if we are going to succeed, if we're going to meet this target, and it's quite chilling when you say 10,000 days, we need this competition to drive drive forward this innovation to meet these goals? Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, anytime there is some, you know, a bit of competition, um, we, we see developments happening. Uh, that, that, that's how it's always been. That's how it continues to be in space. Um, I suppose the only caveat on that is, yes, competition is good. And, you know, we've seen, you know, the US looking at stuff. China is looking at space-based solar power as well. And for all that climate security is, is a global challenge, Politics is always going to going to go going to play a very big role in that. You know, we see that at COP twenty six. We see that uh, in in every conversation around this. So, yes, we need to encourage that competition, and we need to work with 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 partners and allies. 
Um, but we also you know, we have to understand, you know, what what others are doing. Those that that may not want to partner, who who, who may want to to do this on their own or, or, or in their own way with their own partners, and understand again that that sort of strategic environment of of, of how we're using it. But we you know using I think climate security is perhaps that way of 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 maybe jumping over the some of the political hurdles and, and being able perhaps to work with some of those partners who might not be the natural um, allies that, that that we would normally have so it goes back to that when you look at the international space station you see countries which might not get together on earth get on well together on earth collaborating and we need that in space um so martin i want yeah. to to pivot slightly because to me, this still sounds like something which almost came out of science fiction. Where did this this idea come from for space-based solar power? And, and what percentage of energy here on Earth could we potentially get from it in the next 20, 30, 40 years? Yes. So it came originally from science fiction, Isaac Asimov in oh, wow. the 1940s. So it really was. It really was. Uh, but then Dr. Peter Glazier uh, in America uh, developed the first um, viable uh, system design, and he patented that back in the late 60s. NASA then got uh, took took that up, uh, did a, a bunch of work, um, and came up with a viable system. But it was too expensive. Uh, they had yeah too 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 many too many problems with the technology of those those days, particularly the launch technology and cost. And then they a series of um, periodic reviews by NASA. And, and others were conducted through the early uh, 2000s. And then really it was with the advent of uh, the reusable rockets and, and Blue Origin and SpaceX leading the way there, but, but others following rapidly, that's caused this new excitement. So, and, and as I say, combined with the latest satellite design. So in the Fraser Nash study, we looked at three solar power satellite designs, and they are all... Uh, got this highly modular, low-cost uh, approach. And and so that's really where, where it's m migrated from science fiction to, uh, to, to practical, viable things. In terms of how much energy could be produced for the world, um, we, we looked at the UK in the study and we, we, we looked at a sort of 20-25% of the UK's energy needs being produced by space-based solar power. So 10 to 12 satellites 10 to 12 uh, sorry 5 to 10 5 to 6 satellites 10 to 12 gigawatts of of power but it's entirely scalable and of course as as Ali was saying this is going to be an international program so you'd have 30 or 40 or 100 satellites in 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 a program if you look at a ring a narrow ring around the world at a geo um there is hundred times the energy up there than all of humanity will use in 2050. So it's a, it's a huge resource um, and the technology itself is scalable. So this is something we will see in the next few decades? I believe so, definitely. 
And just to pick up there, Dave? All I'm going to say is the Asimov short stories are you know, part of the Robot series. They're really good books. I really, really <laughs> should read them. But I, I love that. I, no, it, it, I love that idea of things that we, we dream up and, and you know, seen in the movies, they, they do become this reality. And I think if you look at the world 100 years ago, our world of today is a world of science fiction compared to then. So potentially 25% of the UK's energy, would that be by the 2040s, 2050s? In the 2040s. 2040s, which is incredible, only two decades away. And and just to wrap up now, oh, um, I just wanted to finish, and I, and I love to ask people this, um, if we could all ask uh, answer this briefly, and I'll start with you, Ali. What does it mean to you to be part of this disruption to our energy sources and, and to, to be utilising the potential for space-based solar power to meet this huge challenge we face here on Earth? I think for me it's about that it's space for good. Uh, space sometimes gets a bit of a bad rap. Uh, I think when we've seen the, the you know, the billionaires uh, going into space and, and, and concerns about, you know, the militarization of space and, and, and the space force. And I think a lot of people start to think, what, what, what does it mean for me? Why, why is space important? And, and because it's so far away, because I don't see it daily. And I think being part of something that is using space to, to have a real impact on, on the future uh, and, and the future of, of our civilization um, is is probably the most exciting part of it for me. And, and Dave, I'm sure your comments will be very similar. Yeah, so um, I, I spent my entire career trying to bring a new baseload technology to, to fruition. Um, so this would be um, this would be everything that I've I've been working towards, and I get to build giant spacecraft at the same time. <laughs> Every it's it's, it's a win. <laughs> and final word to you, Martin. Yeah, it's massively exciting. My, my son has just started uh, doing astronautics at, uh, at university, and I think it's about inspiring the next generation into uh, some a, a hugely worthwhile new field. Okay, well, I'll leave it on that note. But Ali, um, Dave and Martin, thank you so much for your time. Thank, thank you, thank Sarah. You. To hear future episodes of In Orbit, be sure to subscribe on your favourite podcast app, and to find out more about how space is empowering industries between episodes, visit the Catapult website or join them on Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook.